Would you stand with me one more time? I'd like to read a text while we're standing. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 through verse 5, using the New King James Version. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 5. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church he had founded at Corinth, here's what he said. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I want to preach for a while today, faith in the power of God. And if I can say like the Apostle Paul, I did not come to try to persuade you with eloquence of speech or clever philosophy, um, but I want to trust the Lord and preach the word and lead you into the demonstration of the spirit and the power of God. I believe that you're established here and I'm probably preaching to almost everyone. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So I don't think I have to really convince you or persuade you or teach you something you don't know. But maybe something I can say will encourage you, inspire you. Because faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. And I learned a long time ago, uh, you know, if my speech isn't so great and my delivery isn't so great, my technique is lacking, if I can put enough of the word in the message, it's bound to work. It's bound to touch somebody. It's bound to do some good. If I can just get myself out of the way and let the word go forth, it will accomplish its intended purpose. Praise God. So I've had the privilege of preaching and traveling all over the world and I see many different cultures, and I've seen in small groups and large, and we started the church in Austin in 1992 in our home, and then we moved into a rented building, which we were there for four years. Then we built our first building that would seat uh, 300, our second building to seat, I think it was about 600, 500, and the third building to seat 1,000. If you go there uh, on Mopac, on North Mopac, you'll see a big church that says New Life. Uh, and then from that, as you heard, uh, 16 other churches, and of course, some have grown and multiplied, some have closed, but we just had a meeting last night with what we call the New Life Network of the pastors, the, the churches were started or the ministers were sent from our church, and there are a total of 23 churches in the Austin area that are of the New Life Network. And then other ministers have gone forth, I think it's been another 14, Brother Chris Ferguson is one of those who was actually uh, uh, filled or renewed or refilled in the spirit at our church and now is a pastor. And Brother Hendrick came to uh, be with us for a time as he was starting his church. And so we're among friends today. And many of you, most of you, I don't know, but I still feel like we're among friends because we shared this common gospel. So the Apostle Paul uh, was not putting a premium, premium on ignorance or uh, lack of knowledge. He wasn't saying just, uh, just walk up there and say whatever. Uh, because when you study the Apostle Paul's life, uh, he was one of the most highly educated people in his world. Now the Apostle Peter was not educated, but God used him greatly to open the door of the gospel. But the Apostle Paul was highly educated and God used him greatly to appear before kings and governors and according to church history before Caesar himself. So God can use people of every background, high education, little or no education. God uses people of every race, every color, every language. There's no discrimination in the kingdom of God. The church is composed of people of every background and every walk of life. But Paul was, was actually highly educated. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, known in the first century as one of the foremost rabbis, even from Jewish history. At the same time, he was also trained in his culture. It's amazing that when he preached in Athens in Acts 17, he was able to quote from Greek philosophers and poets. Now think about this. This was a time when there were no printed books. There were only manuscripts. They were rare and costly. So I don't know if Paul went to some kind of school for a while, if he was self-educated, but he took the time to get a hold of some Greek manuscripts, pagan manuscripts, read them, and even memorize them. And that may sound shocking, but he was doing it to understand his culture. 
So he had a biblical education to understand the truth of God's word, but he had a secular education to understand his culture so that he could relate and respond. My point is not everybody has to do that, but God does use people, and the Apostle Paul was one of them, that was highly trained. In that context, when he says, I don't come with persuasive speech, I don't come with words of human wisdom, he wasn't saying, don't study, don't learn, don't develop your talents. To the contrary, I believe he would be saying by the example of his life, you do need to develop your talents. If you are a musician or a singer, you should practice. You should train. You should develop a level of excellence. Don't just walk up there and and try to do something that you're not qualified to do. But I think what the Apostle Paul would also say, if you're going to lead in worship, it you can't don't just walk up there as if it's going to be a performance, but you better pray. You better have the anointing of the Spirit so that when you sing or when you play or when you teach or when you preach, it's more than human talent. It's more than human ability. It's more than human training. But there's the anointing of the Holy Holy Spirit. There's the power of God that will touch the human heart. It's time for us to have faith in the power of God. Hallelujah. And so, because Paul knew that if he convinced people by clever philosophy, well, a few years later, somebody else would come along that's even more eloquent, that has more nice sounding philosophy according to the culture of the world. And those converts would be moved over to follow that person. But if their faith was in the power of God, then it would stand the test of time. And whatever winds of doctrine, whatever trials or tribulations, whatever cultural upheaval, they would be able to stand. Why? Because their faith was not in what a man could do. Their faith is what what God could do. I'm not here preaching a man or an organization. We're thankful for a beautiful building. We're thankful for trusted leaders. And you have lost your great leader, Brother Blair Adams. We appreciate his lifelong ministry and faithfulness. I've read a number of his books. So we can rightly commend leaders among us. We can commend excellence of musicians. We can commend a beautiful building, beautiful facility. All those are tools. But at the end of the day, our faith cannot be in a human being. Our faith cannot be in an organization. Our faith must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. I challenge you today, make sure you put your faith in the power of God. Faith in the power of God. If you go back and read from the beginning of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said, I, brother, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. And that's one thing about it. You've heard some here today. But not everyone has all of the knowledge, but we can all have a testimony. It's like the the man that was born blind in John chapter 9. Jesus healed him and he was called up before the religious leaders to denounce Jesus. He says, I don't know about Jesus. He said, say this man is a sinner. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. So he was so ignorant of spiritual truth, he couldn't even say that. But he said, this one thing I know, once I was blind, but now I see. You can't just dismiss Jesus. I can't explain him. I don't really know him. I don't really understand him. But one thing I know, Jesus healed me. Jesus did a miracle. Jesus has the power of God. And of course, that formerly blind man did become a believer in Jesus because he had a testimony. And then verse 2, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It sounds simplistic. It's not simplistic. It is simple, but it's not simplistic. Think about it. If everything we preach is supposed to focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified, what does that mean? That means we'll preach there's one true and living God. That God created us to have fellowship, to love him, to serve him, to worship him, to have a relationship with him. Sadly, we fell into sin. We broke that relationship. God could have destroyed us. God could have started over with some other plan. But he didn't because God so loved the world. 
He had a plan of salvation that he would give his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is actually the one true God manifested in the flesh, in the world. God did not send someone else. God gave of himself. God himself came in the form of the Son of God to make a way for us. The good news, if you'll preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, you'll preach the one true God created us. The one true God has redeemed us. The one true God in all his fullness is revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. But you don't stop with his death. Because he's not hanging on the cross today. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again the third day. So when you preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, you'll tell the rest of the story. He died. He was buried. But he rose again to give victory for us today. And you won't stop with what happened 2,000 years ago. But you'll explain how to apply that message to your life today. As the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, repent, we die to sin in repentance. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. We're buried with Christ in water baptism. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, with the initial sign of speaking in tongues, a language you never learned. As the Spirit gives utterance, you will participate in the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll have the fullness of the Spirit that brings new life now and resurrection in the life to come. And so you'll preach repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, receiving the Holy Spirit. But you won't stop there because Paul said in Galatians, I'm crucified with Christ. He said, I've been crucified to the world. I've been crucified to the flesh. What does that mean? I'm pursuing holiness. I'm living unto God. I'm supposed to act like the world is dead to me and I'm dead to the world. I'm supposed to act like I'm dead to the flesh. What does that mean? It means I will no longer follow the desires of the flesh. I will no longer follow the culture of the world. Of course, there are many things in our world and in our physical lives that are neutral, that can be submitted to God. But if something is contrary to the word of God, we must choose the will of God over what the world says and even over what our own flesh says because we're to be crucified with Christ. So that simple message, Jesus Christ and him crucified, that encompasses the oneness of God, the almighty God in Jesus Christ, the gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection, our response to the gospel through the new birth experience, the life of holiness, it's all right there. The complete apostolic message in a nutshell is right there. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's what we preach today. Our faith must be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people think of faith as very difficult, especially when you face a great challenge like a diagnosis of cancer or when you face great obstacles that seem to be overwhelming, impossible. And sometimes you think we've got to agonize to muster up faith. And some people even pursue a faith preacher, a television, a radio preacher, somebody that is so superhuman that has superhuman faith, apparently. But that's not how faith works. The power of faith is in the object of your faith. Think about it this way. The power of faith is not in your brain. You don't have to try to expand your brain so you have more faith than anybody else and so you can get something. That's not how it works. The power of faith is in the object of your faith. Let me give you an example. I was raised in Korea, as I stated. And the majority of people there were not Christians and still aren't. Many of them were Buddhists. And I remember going to the Buddhist temple to observe. And I would see the people come and they would offer their gifts. They would offer some fruit or some flowers. They would light candles, light incense. They would bring food for the priests. And they would stand before that giant statue. They would raise their hands, sort of like us but in slow motion. They would raise their hands above their heads. And they would bow all the way to the floor, their head touching the floor. And they would stand, maybe do that 50 times. Now that's faith. I'm not ridiculing them. They actually had faith. Maybe as much faith as we do. 
But when they finished praying and turned to go home, there was no change of expression. No forgiveness, no healing, no deliverance. When they went back home, they faced the same problems as before. Why? Even though they had great faith, their faith was in a man who died and was buried, and that's the end. Their faith was in a statue of metal. It had eyes, but they couldn't see. It had ears, but they couldn't hear. So all the faith in the world did not give them an answer because their faith, the object of their faith, had no power. But now, let's look at us. Now, I'm not advocating that you only have a little faith, but I'm saying, if in this whole room, maybe 1,400 people, you say, for sure, I'm the one that has the least faith. I'm not like all these spiritual people. I'm not like all these nice people and all that was read. I'm not like one of those. I'm one of the bad guys. I'm a visitor. I'm a backslider. I'm, I'm the least of the least. Well, you're here, right? Nobody hit you over the head and dragged you here. You had enough faith to be here. You have enough faith to be listening to me without running out the building. There's some level of faith. So if you only had a little bit of faith, that's all you did have. And if you turned it towards the all-powerful God, couldn't you still receive an answer to prayer? Because it's not about you. It's about him. That's what faith means. It's not about what I have or don't have. It's about what the object of my faith has. And when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, all things are possible to those who believe. Nothing is impossible with God. So I challenge you today, whoever you are, faithful saint or first time guest, whatever your need might be, I challenge you, put your faith in the one true and living God. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you. And today, you can be healed. Today, you can be delivered. Today, you can receive a miracle. Today, you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. I challenge you, put your faith in the power of God. Now, if you think I'm getting too far out of the scripture here, let me give you a story. It's found in Matthew chapter 11. And uh, Jesus had gone with his disciples, uh, a few of them, and some were left behind. And so while Jesus was absent, a man came to the remaining disciples with a boy who was attacked by demonic force, evil spirit. And he would have seizures. He was at high risk of injury or death because he would suddenly have a seizure, fall into the fire, or fall into the water and drown. And so this, this father brought his son to Jesus asking for deliverance to the disciples at first. The disciples prayed for him, but nothing happened. So then Jesus showed up and the man brought the boy to Jesus. And Jesus proceeded to deliver the boy. He cast out the evil spirit. He healed him. It's a great story. So then the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we do this? And here's the answer Jesus gave in Matthew 17, 20. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. Now, the mustard seed is the smallest of seeds in ancient Palestine that the farmers used. It's about the size of the head of a straight pin. In other words, from where you're sitting, it's invisible. It's insignificant. Now, think about the nature of a seed. You hold it in your hand. You put it in a bag or box. Some of you here farmers know a lot more about it than I do. But that seed could sit there for years and do absolutely nothing. No use to anybody. If you took that one seed and put it on your plate, it's not going to feed you. It's of no use. For all intents and purposes, that one seed is dead, useless, valueless. But what happens when you take that one seed and put it in the ground? It can germinate. A plant comes forth with many seeds. 
you can reap those seeds, plant them, and eventually you'll have a harvest, not only to feed your family, but for the rest of your life. From one original seed, you're going to have enough to supply all your needs for the rest of your life. Jesus said that's how faith works. In other words, don't go comparing. Well, I only have a teaspoon of faith. I've got a bushel full of faith. Well, I only have a mustard seed of faith. Jesus said if all you have is a mustard seed of faith, forget about what you have or don't have. Use what you've got. You must put it in the ground. You've got to start somewhere. Start with that first prayer. Start with what you're capable of opening up. And if you'll continue, nothing shall be impossible to you. And that's why we sometimes have symbols. We might call everyone to stand or call people to kneel. Or The Bible talks about the laying on of hands. Is there magical power in my hands? Of course not. It talks about the anointing of the oil. Is that oil have inherent power? No. But the oil becomes a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The hands become a symbol of the authority of the church and of calling on God to lay his hands upon us. And so it's a way of focusing our faith. Sure, you could go home and you could receive the Holy Spirit in your bedroom. Sure, you could go here, there, or anywhere. But there is a point of focusing your faith on a specific time. And then you receive. I remember one of our converts years ago in our church in Austin. And she was, uh, she was on alcohol, drugs, in psychiatric care, counseling for several years, going to Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, as she later told her testimony. In fact, she was brought by someone from AA who had received the Holy Spirit in our church. And so she came... And she sat in the very back corner, isolated from everyone else. A young woman, I think she was 23. You could just tell because she wouldn't make eye contact. If someone would come by and say hello, she would just kind of barely respond. And she deliberately sat away from everyone else. So we had a wonderful service. It was actually the dedication of our first building. So it was somewhat formal. But I wanted to have a move of God. And so at the end, we prayed. Well, the Spirit of God began to fall. People would come forward and begin to pray, and God was moving. And I noticed this girl, this young woman, had moved a little bit closer, but still away from everybody. And so I could tell she was hungry. So I went to her and I said, would you like to see what these people are doing? Would you like to see what's happening? She said, yes. I said, well, come follow me. So I brought her right to the front where everybody was praying. And she's just looking with a hungry expression. So after a moment, I said, these people are receiving the Holy Spirit. Would you like to receive what these people have? She said, yes. I said, well, let's pray. She says, I don't know how to pray. I said, okay, just listen to me. And in a few minutes, you start saying the kind of things in your own words that you heard me. So I begin to pray a prayer of repentance. Lord, I'm a sinner. I confess my sins. I don't have any excuses. Please forgive me. I need your power. I need a new life. Take me as I am. Fill me with your spirit. Change my life. So I turned her, pray. She started praying. The power of God began falling. She, she began stammering, and, and the power of God was right there. But she just, she just kind of was stuck. So after a while, I stopped her. She says, I, I'm afraid. What is this? I'm, I'm scared. I said, this is the Holy Spirit. You know, when you pray in Jesus' name, nothing bad can come on you. It's only good. It's the Holy Spirit, not an evil spirit. Don't worry. Let's pray again. Same thing. She could get past that. So after we finished praying, I finally told her, look, I said, you're right there ready to receive the Spirit. The moment you move from fear to faith, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. It's going to be simple. I said, in fact, it could happen anywhere. It could happen tonight at your bed. I said, anywhere. Well, she believed that more than I did. She worked at the University of Texas. So the next night she comes. Now, she's a non-church person. So the first thing she says, hey, preacher. I said, Yes. She says, I got it. I said, you got what? She says, you know what you're talking about. So I wanted to make sure. I said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Yes. Did you speak in tongues? Yes. Did you speak words of a language you did not know? Yes. I said, well, praise the Lord. Tell me what happened. She said, well, I was in my office 
at the university. So I got to thinking about I could receive the Holy Spirit anywhere. She said, I knew there was one place nobody would bother me. She said, I went into the ladies' restroom. There's a little couch there. I don't know. You, you may say this is a strange story. I'm just telling you what happened, okay? <laughs> she said, I went to the ladies' restroom, and I knelt by the couch. And she says, I got it. She says, I spoke in tongues for 30 minutes. She said, that was on her, her break. She said, it felt so good at lunch, I went back in there and I got it again. That was 1996. She's still in the church today. Now that is a little bit of an unusual story. But the point is, it's the, where you have faith in God. All things are possible. So you got to plant the seed in the ground. So we all have faith of some kind. Everybody that's here today has some kind of faith. But you may not receive very much until you focus that faith you got to plant the seed in the ground. you got to come to a point of decision or a point of consecration or a point of urgency, a point of calling out. And it might involve the laying on of hands or it might involve the anointing of oil or it might involve some of these other biblical symbols. Those aren't absolutely required, but it's just a way to focus our faith instead of on ourselves or instead of some other person or on the problem or the obstacle or the circumstances to focus our faith on the power of God. And I could just spend the rest of the day telling you stories, but I just want to share some inspiring testimonies. A few years ago, I was in El Salvador for the 40th anniversary of the United Pentecostal Church there, and they rented, it kind of reminded me what you're saying about this um, this festival, because when, when our, one of our early missionaries went there, he said, you know, they, they rented a large facility for their national conference, and they would try to build a bigger facility and, or uh, acquire a bigger facility. He told the church, one day, we're going to have the largest stadium in the country. So I was there when they rented the largest soccer stadium in the nation. So we're headed to church that Sunday morning. We got stuck in this terrible traffic jam, and we thought, I mean, this is terrible. We're, we're preachers. We're going to be late for church. But then we realized the terrible traffic jam was hundreds of buses of Pentecostal people from all over the country coming to the conference. So then we didn't feel so bad about being in the traffic jam. 35,000 people were in the soccer stadium. We had three services. I preached one of those in that same day. When we preached, we invited people to come pray. 5,000 people came down on the field to pray. And in those three services, we counted 3,842 people received the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues in one day. And then I thought, that's more than the day of Pentecost. And we look at the day of Pentecost as the epitome. We look at the apostles, rightly so, as the, the heroes of faith. And we'd probably say, what it would be like to live in the time of the apostles? What it would have been like to hear the apostle Peter preach? What it would have been like to be part of that first church in Jerusalem? I think, I'm just speculating, maybe the apostles might be saying, boy, what's it, what's it like in the 21st century? What's it like to have the power of the internet and international travel and printing press? And what's it like to have... Thousands of believers all over the world. And so then I thought, wow, this is even bigger than the day of Pentecost. And then they brought a man in a wheelchair. And we watched as we all prayed for him. God healed him. He rose out of the wheelchair and was able to walk away from the conference. I thought, Acts 2, now Acts 3. Isn't that amazing? God is doing great things. And then after that, in the Philippines, we had over 5,000 receive the Holy Spirit in one conference. That's like Acts 4. And I thought, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, no, Lord, we, we don't want to go there. Let's just skip over Acts 5. Can we please? <laughs> but we are living in apostolic days. Right before COVID, my wife and I took a, a trip to Turkey. We met a young man who was a professor in Iran. And uh, he, of course, it's an Islamic nation, but as he studied Islam, he realized 
it was false. So he became an atheist. That's the only thing he knew to do. Uh, unfortunately for him at the time, he made some statements. The police found out about it. They charged him with the crime of blasphemy. He was put under house arrest for two years. In the meantime, his mother had immigrated to Turkey, where she came into one of our churches, baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Spirit. She began writing her son, you've got to escape. You've got to come to Turkey. So one night he slipped away from his home, away from the house arrest, made it to the border. took him about a month to cross the border because he had to find how to get across and paying people off and people stole his money. But he finally made it across. Of course, he was arrested by the Turkish police as an illegal immigrant. But he was in jail there for a while, but he finally got refugee status. He got out. He met his mom. She said, you have to come with me to church. So here's his dilemma. He's an atheist. He doesn't want to go to church. But it's his mom. So you got to do what your mom says, right? So here's what he told me. My wife and I interviewed him. He said, I made a list of 50 reasons why there is no God. He said, I put them in my pocket. And he told my mom, I will come to you, your church one time. But afterwards, I want to meet with your pastor. And I have 50 questions that he has to answer. If he expects me to keep coming, he's going to have to have the answer to those 50 questions. So he walks into this Pentecostal service for the first time in his life, any kind of Christian service. And this is what he tells me. He says, Brother Bernard, when I walked in, I felt something I never felt before in my life. He said, tears begin rolling down my cheeks. He says, I wonder, why, why am I crying? And then he said, I realized for the first time in my life, I was in the presence of God. God was reaching out because he loved me. He said, Brother Bernard, I didn't have to meet the pastor. God answered all 50 questions at that one moment. I knew God is real. Needless to say, he was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's in our church. That only, not only happens in the Middle East, but I can tell you stories. Communist country that I won't name, but could be pretty obvious. I remember going there doing a minister seminar. We had to take extreme measures of caution. And here's what really touched my heart. We, we had to, I won't go through all the details, but we had to disguise what we're doing. And, and uh, so we met like in a seminar and uh, it was a music seminar. So they had their PowerPoint and they had musicians and then they would turn it over to me. But they had people at the door so that if anybody approached the door that wasn't part of the group, they would give a signal. And I, when I heard that sound, I was supposed to sit down and be as inconspicuous as possible, being the only white person in the whole room, but do my best. <laughs> and in a, mo a moment's time, they'd flip it to the music seminar. Sure enough, that happened. We had, it, it turned out to be a hotel worker. He was just coming to bring water because he, he understood it was a music seminar. So, you know, I rush to the front seat, I bow down, I take out a book, I start reading, and, and they start their music seminar and musical scales and the whole thing, and, and it just turns out to be the worker. Uh, but then the next day, it was more serious. An authoritative-looking man came in. We went through the same routine, but you could tell there was tension there because what's going to happen? Turned out it was the owner of this facility and he had figured out that we were a Christian group and he was going to shut us down because he was worried the police might find out. And so one of, our, one of our participants actually was a businessman that knew him, pulled him aside and said, look, here's what we're doing, here's our plan. Actually, it's very safe because if the police approach uh, the, the hotel facility or the motel facility, just give a call to the room. We'll have plenty of time to set up our music seminar before they even get close. So it's, it's doubly safe, you know, if you'll let us know. And so he finally gave us permission to continue. But you could just feel the tension. So at the close of the seminar, and these are mostly young people, young adults, young men and women. Many of them have careers. Some are school teachers, professors, master's degrees, doctor's degrees. These are, these are leaders from across the country. These are not just the local residents or, or farmers or workers. They're, they're 
people of the elite of the country that are secretly serving Jesus. And so they came forward for prayer. They explained to me, many of these are in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, but they still live with their parents because there's a housing shortage in the nation. They live in these little apartments. Many times their parents are unbelievers of any kind or they, they're idol worshipers in their home. They'll have little uh, uh, idols and little altars and they're evil spirits because when you worship like that, that attracts the forces of evil. And so I began empathizing. These are what we would call pastors or elders or leaders and every time they come to church, they're risking being arrested, thrown in prison, losing their career, being fined. And then when they go home, they're living with their unbelieving parents that are worshiping idols. They face evil spirits at home. How would you like to try to serve God in your home? You're battling evil spirits. And every time you meet with your fellow believers, you're in danger of being arrested. And they can't worship you know, demonstratively, because they're in little apartments, they can't even all come at the same time. They have to take about an hour for them to filter in and get there. And they have to worship quietly. I, they had me baptize some people. I, I baptized two in my hotel room. Uh, another time we hiked up a mountain to get away from people, found a mountain stream. I baptized 17 people in the cold mountain stream. That's not too bad going down and up, but if you're the person baptizing 17 people, the cold mountain stream could be pretty cold. <laughs> but anyway, so they asked for prayer. So I'm thinking they wanted me to lay hands on them and pray for every single couple. As many of these are starting churches in various, many were over, some were overseeing like 50 house churches. Obviously they can't have just church buildings. They, they're meeting in homes. So they have all these little house churches and these are the leaders. And I'm thinking they're wanting protection. They're wanting security, which obviously they're human, they would. But no, their main concern was not, God, why are you allowing this to happen to us? Or God, why don't you protect us? Or pray that we'll be protected and safe and secure. They had two prayer requests. God, give us discernment to know who to talk to. Because if we talk to the wrong person, we'd get arrested. So they're not thinking about not witnessing. They just wanted God to lead them to the right persons to talk to. And the second per request, they wanted power with God because they said, you know, we're not going to argue people into believing in Jesus. It's not going to be just intellectual discourse or reasoning or, or, or arguing. We have to have the anointing of the spirit and we have to pray for people and people get healed. People are touched by God. People are delivered. People, they're unbelievers and God answers their prayer. And then they know God is real. So he said, we need the power of God. I thought, isn't that just like Acts 4 after the early church was persecuted? They didn't give up. They prayed for boldness to witness. They prayed for signs to accompany their ministry. That touched my heart. And by the way, we're having great revival in that nation, even despite the adverse circumstances. There are many believers that are coming to God and I, I don't even know the full story because we can't get the statistics. And we have different groups that work uh, uh, separate from each other because of security concerns. But it's amazing to me how God is working all across our world. In the most sophisticated of places. But it really goes down to faith and the power of God. I'll tell you another story close to home here in Austin. There was a man who was a Buddhist for 23 years. But in his meditation, he started encountering evil spirits and he started having nightmares. It scared him. He didn't know the truth, but apparently he was hungry. You know, God is not looking to send people to hell. God's not looking for ways to destroy people. God is looking for ways to reveal truth to people. And so God gave him a dream. And in the dream, a woman in white spoke to him. So maybe an angel, we would say, and spoke to him and said, believe on Jesus Christ. Your answer is in Jesus. He woke up from that dream and he decided to find a Christian church. Well, he found a large non-denominational church, started going there, but it wasn't, nothing was happening. He went there for a few months. So he started going online and he found some videos of Pentecostal preaching that stirred his heart. 
So he Googled and he looked for Pentecostal Church, Austin, Texas. He found our church, New Life. I talked to Pastor Shaw. I was actually preaching that morning as a guest, but I didn't know, I didn't know he was there. Pastor Shaw told me later. So this man who's a Buddhist for 23 years has been told to follow Jesus. Going to a non-denominational Christian church that doesn't really touch his heart. He's looking for more. He told Pastor Shaw, when I walked in the building, I felt the power of God. He said, this is what I'm looking for. That night, Pastor Shaw baptized him in the name of Jesus Christ. When he came up out of the water, pastor laid hands on him. God filled him with the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. That's right here in Texas. So whether it's Buddhist or Muslim or Jewish or atheist or Christian or just backslidden Pentecostals, we've had Pentecostal people got saved at our church. It sometimes happens. (laughs) One more story. Years ago, one of our men in his 40s had throat cancer. They did chemotherapy, radiation, knocked out his immune system. It actually went overkill. He got an infection. He had a stroke, brought him to the hospital. He had a heart attack, almost died. They, they shocked him back to life. So when I showed up, talked to the family, the doctor said, you know, he is in a coma We don't know if he's going to come out. If he comes out, we don't know what kind of brain damage is there. He could be a vegetable the rest of his life. Uh, He's probably going to keep having heart attacks. And so my advice is for the next heart attack, just let him go. That's the safest thing. So the family signed, do not resuscitate. So the doctor said, my estimation is he only has a 10% chance of surviving tonight. He'll probably just have a heart attack. He'll be gone. 90%. But if he does survive, we don't know what the future is, if he'll ever come out of the coma or if he'll be brain damaged the rest of his life, whatever. What a grim report. It was our church service, but I felt the Lord prompt me when he said 10% chance of surviving. So I went to the church. I said, now, we don't know. You know, we believe God heals, but also there's a time that God takes people home, and we don't know when that is. So we can't just make God do anything. But we're gonna, but but our job is to pray the prayer of faith. Our job is not to just give up and say, okay, whatever, whatever happens, happens. No, our job is to pray for healing. And then if God takes him, okay, we say we accept the will of God. But our job is any sick among you, call for the elders of the church and pray for him. So I said, now the doctors gave him a 10% chance. And so I respect the doctors. I don't have anything against doctors. That's his best. That's the best thing he could do from a human perspective. But I said, what if we pray and God heals him? Then wouldn't that mean it's a 90% chance it was a miracle? Not a 100% chance. It could have just been, right? So I said, what if God heals him? I'm going to go back to the doctor and say, hey, doctor, 90% chance you just saw a miracle. What a great testimony. So I said, let's not just give up and accept what the doctor knows. Let's pray and see if God will do the work. And sure enough, God healed him. God brought him out of the hospital. God brought him back to work. About 20 years ago, he's still in church today. And sometimes when I'm preaching or if I share that testimony, he'll start running up and down the aisle. And some people look and say, what's wrong with him? I say, he's got a right to run all he wants to run because God healed him. God did a miracle. God delivered. I will trust God every time. The world says it's impossible, but God says it's possible. I challenge you, have faith in the power of God. Let me share one more verse with you. Matthew 7, 7, 7, 7, number of perfection. You got that, right? Jesus said, ask. And, and what happens when you ask? It shall be given. Seek. What happens when you seek? You find. Knock. What happens? Shall be open. Maybe somebody's already showed you. A-S-K. Ask, seek, knock. You just memorized the whole verse. Now you know it. Many times we don't receive, James says, because we just don't ask. We've got money in the bank. We've got doctors, which I 
I'm thankful for. We've got counselors. We've got retirement. We've got insurance. We've got this. We've got that. And so sometimes we look at everything else to supply our needs, and then nothing answers. Then we go to God. I wonder if we went to God first, if we might see more answers. Ask. But what if you ask and nothing's happened? Don't give up. Go to the next level urgency. You, you can ask kind of like just standing here, right? I want something. But seek is, you've got to be more active. You've got to be more aggressive. You have to take initiative. You say, I've done that. Well, go to the next level. Knock. Knock. Now think about it. If the door is open, you don't generally knock, do you? When I came in here, I just walked in. I didn't knock on the door. We usually knock because the door is closed. I wonder how many times we're seeking God, we feel like God has given direction, we head in direction, and then there's an obstacle. And we, we just shrug our shoulders and say, well, I guess I missed it. Door's shut. So give up. Maybe God wants you to knock on the door. Maybe God wants you to push. Maybe we should pray until something So I feel led to leave this with you right now. Ask. Seek. Knock. Now individually, your family, your fellowship here, you're going to have to apply it. I can't can't know the will of God for you. I don't know how it applies. But it's the word of God, so I'm pretty sure it's going to apply to somewhere, somebody, somewhere. So I'm going to summarize by now asking us to pray. Put your faith in the power of God. Would you close your eyes with me? Would you be sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Confirm your word in some way as we call upon you. There are needs all across this building. Speak to our hearts. Inspire our faith. Lord, let healing go forth in this place. Let deliverance go forth in this place. Let forgiveness go forth. Let reconciliation within families go forth and among believers go forth. Oh, Lord, touch hungry hearts. Pour out the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, we're calling upon you. Pour out your Spirit today. Oh, Lord, we're asking that you would do a miracle in our midst, that you would heal, that you would deliver, that you would set free. There is no way.